0: Well, thank you, Nathan and the worship team. He is risen. I know it's not Easter, but we gather as the church to celebrate that reality, not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday. Anybody here enjoy makeover shows? Scott, what do you think of them? (laughs) Yeah, all right. Right, and there's a whole wide variety. It's probably a, a genre of TV shows. Everything from making over a person's wardrobe to their house, their business. It essentially is the same thing—a complete change from top to bottom. Remember the old uh, Extreme Makeover: Home Edition with Ty Pennington and that uh, that three-word catchphrase. If you know it, say it: Move that bus. You look him up now, and he just looks kind of like a old youth pastor, but maybe that was his gig. But I ask that, really, because making over the church is all the rage these days, giving it a new look, often a, a look that's made in our own image, a church that's fashioned for our own liking. Throughout the decades, people have Attempted to reshape and redesign the church, thinking that they themselves know what is best for the body of Christ. You don't believe me? Just search Amazon and look for books on the church, and you'll find a wide array of literary blueprints for what the church supposedly ought to look like. You'll find titles like Woke Church, Messy Church, Vertical Church, Analog Church, even a book called Church Zero. I don't know if that's a church filled with a bunch of zeros, but but part of the problem is that we really don't even know the right question to ask, right? Most of us, that's what you would assume reading some of these books. Really, the question we should and must be asking is this. What is God's design for the church? What does he want us to look like and function like? And the first place that we need to go to and look for that answer is obviously the Word of God. Now when Patrick asked me to fill in this morning, he made only one request. I had to preach on a topic that was related to the theme for this year, the theme of discipleship. Here we are almost to the middle of the year, you should know that. And with that blank check, essentially, my mind immediately went to our text for this morning, Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Over the nine years that I served as a pastor out in Samish Island, this passage of scripture continually remained at the forefront of my mind, largely because it's in this text that we find a key element of God's design for the church. Having been written around 60 to 62 AD from prison, Paul writes to the first century believers living in the Roman province of Asia. And the letter, the book of Ephesians, is really one of incredible encouragement and admonition. And one of the distinct ways in which Paul communicates that is by laying out all that we as Christians possess in Christ. That's one of his favorite phrases, in Christ. Really, the the letter, the book of Ephesians, is a book of identity, which Paul vividly details for his readers so that they and we might be motivated to action as believers. So in light of that, it's my hope this morning to, to essentially answer the question I've already raised. What is God's design and purpose for his church? And even more so, how has the Lord equipped us to do that? And to be that. And so in order to do that, let, us, let me invite us into our text for this morning. Stand if you're able to. Let me invite us to stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets... makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love let's pray father god as we come to your word we pray that you would open our eyes to these truths and lord we pray that you would answer this question through this occasion of the preached word we want to know your thoughts lord for they are higher than our own Lord, help us to understand what you've called us to be, not just individually, but collectively as your church, the very body of Christ over which Christ is the head. Thank you for this time together as a church family. Pray that Christ would be exalted in all things, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. to kind of give us some pegs to hang our thoughts on. I've broken this down into four key thoughts. Number one, I want to talk about our gifts. Number two, our growth. Number three, our guard. And number four, our guarantee. And obviously, as a good Baptist, I've offered you a solid alliteration. Our gifts, our growth, our guard, and our guarantee. Let's get into it. Looking at number one, our gifts. Now, the context of Ephesians 4 suggests that Paul is alluding to spiritual gifts in verse 11, which Christ, incidentally, was authorized to give to men. You see that in verse 8 because of his submission to his father on the cross. And and, and such gifts were bestowed upon the earth following Christ's glorious resurrection. Uh, You see in verse 8 of Ephesians 4, uh, Paul rewords Psalm 68, verse 18, wherein he says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Historically, after a great battle, the victorious king would traditionally bring home not just those whom he had captured as prisoners of war, but he'd also bring some of the spoils of war so that he might bless those whom he ruled over. And in Acts 1 and 2 Luke details for us how upon his ascension into heaven, Jesus did that very thing. He gave spiritual gifts to his people through the coming of his spirit who would indwell them. And then beginning in verse 11, the beginning of our text, Paul then names four specific spirit-empowered gifts that Christ has given to his bride, the church. Now, some of you probably think I've already messed up by counting wrong, but We'll get to that. There are four gifts, not five. But upon reading this verse, verse 11, we discover that these gifts that Christ has given his church are not things so much as they're people. More specifically, they're individuals who are uniquely gifted and divinely called by God to serve the body. They're what you might call gifted gifts. Or a more familiar term would be, these are ministry leaders. Let's look at them. Look at verse 11. Paul says, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles. These are the ones we, this is the group we might call the sent ones. And that term apostle was used primarily for the 12 disciples who had originally seen Christ in his risen and resurrected state. That was part of their being sent was that they were to declare, they were to bear witness to that. And the group actually included Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. You read of that in Acts 1. And then jump ahead to Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul actually identifies himself also as an apostle. Uh, in saying Paul, an apostle, he identifies himself. Paul, an apostle, not from men, though through man, but through Christ, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And in addition to that 12 plus 1 group, the term apostle was also used in a much broader sense for other prominent early church leaders, men like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. And what stood out about the apostles was two things. Number one, their teaching, and number two, the the wonders that they would do. Again, Acts 2, we read beginning in verse 42, Luke says, and they, that being the members of the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what Luke does there is he, he emphasizes the fact that the preaching and instruction of God's word was foundational to the life and health of the church. Lo and behold, it still is. And secondly, Paul goes, or, uh, Luke goes on to say in verse 43 of Acts 2, that awe came upon every soul. And, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And, and those signs that were done by the apostles were were incidentally proofs that God was at work in and through them. That's the first group of gifted gifts. Number two, the prophets. And these are the ones we might call the, the expounders of divine revelation. And it was the prophets who had been specifically commissioned by God and led by his spirit to foretell of future realities and events in the life of the church and its members. And these men, these prophets often spoke out against the social sins at that time, as well as identifying the failings of God's people. And and as you look at those two gifts together back in Ephesians 2, Paul actually unites those first two gifts when he notes that we as the church are, quote, the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were the ones whom Paul later notes in Ephesians 3 as having had, quote, the mystery of Christ made known to them by the Spirit. And both of those groups were vital to the very life of the early church in terms of both their witness and their leadership. But what's important to note is that both of those church offices have ceased to exist beyond the completion of the New Testament. Since the church's foundation has already been built, there essentially is no need for apostles or prophets. What is more, these first two gifts have essentially been replaced by the next two, two titles, two church offices that we're more familiar with and we experience on a weekly, if not daily basis, the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Group number three, you have the evangelists. These were the heralders or heralds of good news. And if ever there was an office that is severely overlooked in the church today, it would be this one. Those who were whose very lives were given to the sole mission of proclaiming the euangelion, the the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those that possess that gift actually also possess a, a deep passion to reach the lost. It's the evangelists who are the ones who have an eye towards and a heart for those who remain outside the church. And fourthly, The fourth group of gifted gifts, you have the shepherds and teachers, or what we might just call shepherd teachers. I I, I join those two together because due to the lack of a definite article in the original Greek text, those two titles are actually best to be understood as referring to one specific office, the shepherd teachers. And the New Testament also refers to these group of gifted men as elders or or bishops or, or overseers. They're all synonymous terms for the same calling. And these men were ones who were called to serve under the direction of the chief shepherd. And their specific calling in the words of Acts 20, verse 28 is, quote, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In fact, in Acts 6, verse 4, we're told that their focus is to be primarily upon prayer and to the ministry of the word. And As you hear Peter, Peter tells us that that it's these men who are, quote, to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have them, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not dominating over those in their charge but being examples to the flock. We read that in 1 Peter 5. Four great groups of incredibly gifted individuals. And I just want to stop. And I want to think of everything that those gifts have meant to us as a church, as the church. We essentially have our history and our theological foundation because of the apostles. We have the gospel embodied and emphasized because of the prophets. We've personally been given that message and, and thus included in the church because of the evangelists. And we have been and continue to be cared for and led and lovingly instructed as the church because of our shepherd teachers. And women, it's precisely these spiritual servants and ministers whose very shoulders we've stood upon as the body of Christ for the past two centuries. They're gifts. They're gifts. The person who shared their faith with you and led you to Christ was a gift. The the worship pastor is a gift. The evangelist is a gift. The the pastor of adult ministries, the pastor of student ministries, by extension, your your children's ministry director, your women's ministry directors, they're all gifts. And your equipping class teacher, your your teaching pastor, every man who stands behind this pulpit and preaches the word of God to you, men and women, is a gift. I have to carefully say that because... I don't say it to inflate their egos or mine, but rather to help us understand the true nature of the calling that's been bestowed upon those whom God has called to serve within the body of Christ. Their gifts. I say that because we, myself included, can be so quick to complain about our church leaders, right? What they're doing or not doing. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Men and women, such teachers and leaders are absolutely fundamental to our growth and discipleship as followers of Christ. They're the very ones who continually lead the charge for so many elements of our personal walk as Christians as well as our shared faith and testimony as the church. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us that we are to obey our leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. And women, the people that do that for you are a gift. The people who've done that for me are a gift the author goes on to say, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, church, everything that these gospel ministers do is used by Jesus to bless and direct and rule over his church. And all of these gifts, past and present, come together in a unique work, which can be summed up in one word. The word is Growth. Number two, our growth. After all, every spiritual gift has a divinely intended purpose. Look at the text, verse 12. Paul says they are to equip the saints. Now, speaking from personal experience here, pastors and church leaders are often urged to do all kinds of things by the people they serve. And and without question, there are many things that they can do, good things. But this This is the one thing they must do. This is their central calling, to equip. This word comes from the verb meaning to fit or to complete thoroughly. It has the idea of strengthening something or bringing it to a perfect condition. God's servants have been essentially sent so that God's saints might be completely furnished. That's what Paul's saying here. And as we'll see later in verse, six, in verse 15, central to that equipping work is the ministry of God's word. Insofar as it's both lovingly taught and powerfully preached to God's people. And again, what exactly does God use these gifts, these gifted leaders to equip us for? Look again, he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip for the work This is essentially where the rest of the church comes in because we're all called to serve out of our unique spiritual gifts. As it turns out, we not only have received gifts, but we ourselves are gifts insofar as we all have a work to do. In the section leading up to our passage, Paul tells us that, quote, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, Paul says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God, listen to this, who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul is essentially referring here to specific gifts and ministries within the church, all of which work towards God's intended purposes and overall goals. Again, our number one, our spiritual gifts promote our spiritual goals. And, and, and these goals have obviously been established by God, right? This is important. All of the members of, of God's church are called by God to be engaged and some sort of spiritual endeavor and labor. Peter writes of this in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is that? That's, that's the priesthood of all believers. And what is more, that essentially shatters the myth of the paid professional minister. There's no such thing. As well as shattering the, this assumed division between laymen and clergy. Listen, it's, it's not the sole responsibility of the pastors of this church or any church to do everything while everybody just sits back and watches in fact, I've, I've heard that very kind of thinking and logic justified on the basis, basis of a person's tithe. Well, I pay for him and he ought to work for it. And we went, that's ridiculous. Because you look at the scriptures and, and you ask the question, who are the ministers in the church? The answer is very clear. It's all of us. All of us are called to minister. For, minister first and foremost to one another as the body. And secondly, to the rest of the world. Paul continues to elaborate upon the purpose for the previously mentioned gifts. Look at it. He says, for building up the body of Christ. So essentially, our spiritual gifts not only promote our spiritual goals, but they also promote our spiritual growth as a church. For building up. It, it, it refers to the work of spiritual edification in and among the saints. It speaks of our cultivation as a a religious community, as the church. The promoting of our collective spiritual development in terms of things like our love for one another, our wisdom, our holiness of life, our personal devotion, even our contagious joy. And women, grace has been given by the Lord not just to a select few, but to everyone within the church in the form of a spiritual gift, which in turn is intended for the mutual help and edification of one another. Right? Paul speaks of this, Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. That's us. Each of us as believers are equipped more than equipped to serve the church in a unique and special way. In fact, Paul offers his very mission statement. It's written right behind me, so I better quote this right, but his mission statement for the ministry, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, wherein Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Paul says, for to this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What a high calling. That's the bar. And Paul knows that it's a stewardship. It's a gift, but it's also a responsibility. One that doesn't just fall on the shoulders of the quote-unquote paid professional, the guy up front, It rather falls on all of our shoulders. Let me say it even more simpler. Being a Christian involves far more than just going to church every week. You do realize that, right? I mean, think of all the tools that you possess right now. I'm not talking spiritually, I'm talking physically. In your garage, your attic, your basement, wherever you keep them. And just think of what each tool does. What it's capable of doing as well as everything that could be done if and when they're used together. You know, they weren't designed. Each of those tools weren't designed to just serve as decorative pieces on an HGTV design show. That's not their purpose. And the companies that crafted them never meant for them to just sit in a dusty old toolbox or collectively clutter up in our backyard shed. In turn, all of us who have been spiritually gifted, we're going to have to get involved. Even more so, we're going to have to remain committed to the life and various ministries of this church if we ever hope to see the sort of eternal results that bring God the highest glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit... Strive to excel in building up the church. So to summarize just these first two verses, and, and they're so meaty, they're so weighty. The, the gifts, these leaders equip the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry. That ministry in turn builds up the body and it all occurs and it all leads to, look at verse 13, until we all attain to the unity. It all is unfolding and taking place until we're unified, right? Our growth involves, number one, our unity. We, we essentially are growing closer. Back in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19, Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Paul says, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Later in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul will, will clarify saying there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Men and women, God has woven oneness into the very fabric of our identity as His church. And Paul actually goes on to explain how our unity springs out of two specific things number one, our faith, and number two, our knowledge. Unity of the faith, he says. Right. This phrase speaks of the mutual agreement of our shared belief and God-given trust in not just God's Word, but also God's Son. And secondly, we're unified in the knowledge of the Son of God, Paul says. And there he's speaking of a right and ever-growing, ever-deepening understanding of Jesus as one of his followers and disciples. In fact, Paul prays that very thing for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, verses 17 and 18. His prayer for the Ephesians was, quote, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's what binds us together, our shared belief in God and his word and our ever-growing understanding of who Christ is. That, my friends, is the, those are the spiritual threads that God uses to somehow supernaturally bind us together as his family. As if it couldn't get any better, Paul goes on to explain that it also unfolds unto, to mature manhood, right? Our growth involves not just our unity, but also, Paul says, our maturity. We don't just grow closer, but we grow deeper, To mature manhood, that word mature can be rendered as complete uh, again or or, or perfect, right? The phrase actually suggests maximum personhood or the the picture of a full-grown adult. might interest you to know that in Greek culture, a mature man was the ultimate picture of human perfection, strength paired with splendor. Beauty paired with brawn, right? You, you think of such things, such statues like Atlas at the Rockefeller Center in New York City or, or, or Michelangelo's David in Florence, Italy, right? The picture of the perfect man, totally ripped out of his mind, right? Every high school boy's dream to look like that. <laughs> And how is that maturity defined by God? Look at the next phrase. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Romans 8, 29, Paul will say, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is quite a phrase, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me try and break this down. The measure, that's the determined extent. Uh, it, it, It could be the required amount of the stature. That's maturity, full age of the fullness. That is the picture of abundance of Christ. Link them all together. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's essentially Paul saying that Christ is the model He's the example. Paul's trying to convey the idea of us being everything that God wants us to be. And what is that? Nothing less than Christ-like. Us as the body of Christ, being just like Christ himself. And women, that's God's ultimate aim and goal for the church. And and let me add, there's no shortcuts for that. There's no way around to, to try and somehow... Uh, not put in the work and yet still attain that goal, right? It's it's natural for us as human beings to yearn for shortcuts. I remember, as a kid, we'd be sent home to do our math in these workbooks, and and they'd send us home with the answers. and And I thought, did the teacher know that? But obviously, the teacher would say, "Well, that's to correct your work." Yeah, okay, wink, wink. Yeah, I know what it's there for. It's so that I can get this done and get out and play. We love shortcuts. Don't laugh like you didn't do it. But those shortcuts typically keep us from what God wants. He wants us to be growing, not just deeper, but together. And when we take shortcuts, when we try and fake it, it never really comes about. God wants, even intends for us as his people to grow closer and to grow up That brings us to the third reality, number three, our guard, our guard. Beginning in verse 14, Paul employs some vivid metaphors to describe practical signs of spiritual immaturity, and and he really is going to lay out effects and, and then causes of spiritual immaturity. Look at the effect, verse 14. All of this we've talked about, all the gifts being given, all the gifts placed within us, all of us using our gifts together, all of that is occurring so that we grow up, so that we grow together, and in turn, verse, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. Now, I don't have to explain this, right? The image of a child is is pretty understandable. It's, it, it's basically somebody who's unskilled or 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 untaught, right? A child is simple-minded and and at times can be incredibly immature. It's really uh, the opposite of the person who had reached mature manhood, as depicted in verse 13. The thing about children, my own included, is they're quite gullible, right? They'll fall for anything. They're too trusting. What's more, they're notoriously fickle, right? Changing their minds every five seconds. Please tell me you've had this happen in your household. I want chicken fingers. Ten minutes later, here's your chicken fingers. I hate chicken fingers. I wanted macaroni and cheese. You asked for chicken fingers. I hate chicken fingers. Please tell me that doesn't just happen at our house. (laughs) Right? The desires and feelings and emotions of a child can be all over the place. Do you want to know the kind of Christian who's the most susceptible to accepting false teachings. It's a spiritual child. God doesn't want his church to be a nursery made up of spiritual toddlers. In fact, in Hebrews 5, you read of this very sharp spiritual rebuke. Verse 12, the author says, For... Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. God doesn't want us to be children. What is more, he goes on to explain, Paul explains another effect of spiritual immaturity, saying that we can be tossed to and fro by the waves. Has anybody here ever been caught at sea in a storm? Thought of my friend Mike Holmstrom as a fisherman. He's probably gone through this a ton, right? And, And maybe you're not even a fisherman. Most of us aren't. But you've been on a boat and surely you've been caught in waves, right? You remember the last time that happened to you? I'll never forget going out as a, as a family, my wife and I with my parents, and we were just gonna cruise on this sunny day down the Columbia River. And, and it was smooth until we turned around and started he- heading back. And it was up and then down and then up and then down, right? I still remember that jarring feeling of being in rolling waves tossed to and fro, feeling absolutely powerless. My life wasn't threatened, but I certainly remember feeling not knowing which direction I was going to be thrown next. That's what Paul is describing here. The the phrase paints the picture of a boat or a ship being at the mercy of a turbulent storm. And carried about, that's the second effect, or excuse me, the, the third effect. That term actually suggests the idea of of being moved all around in one's mental state, right? Thoughts of anything from thoughts of doubt and hesitation to to feelings of anxiety and and agitation and distress to be carried about essentially looks like our being willfully swayed from one spiritual opinion to the next. Those are all the effects of spiritual immaturity, but what are some of the causes? Well, Paul shares three in particular Three potential threats to believers in the church. Tossed and carried about how, Paul? He says, threat number one, by every wind of doctrine. More specifically, every wind of false doctrine. Right? True biblical doctrine does the opposite. It it, it works to anchor us as the people of God to the very character and promises of God. But false doctrine, well, that causes us to be thrown about and, and swept away in terms of our personal hopes and beliefs, right? There are those in this church even, certainly the church at large, who are like a kite in the wind when it comes to their believing every spiritual teaching or, or every quasi-Christian thought, right? They're, they're all over the place. That's not how we're to live, right? We as the church should be so committed to God's word that we wouldn't even put up with the slightest twisting or, or corruption of it. My mind and, and your mind probably goes to the Bereans, right? Act seventeen, eleven. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Listen to this: examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Men and women, that's the litmus test for discernment. Not just, well, the guy up front said it; it must be true, which is on par with it's on the internet. It can be tossed and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Threat number two, by human cunning. This could be rendered as trickery, right? That that term actually describes deception or or sleight of hand. It's like a theological shell game, right? Where's the truth? Is it here? Is it there? Where is it? And if ever there was a term to describe the the kinds of bait and switch techniques that are so often utilized by seeker-sensitive churches today, it's that human cunning and trickery. Third threat, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This phrase speaks to a kind of deceitful cleverness that's prompted by a false form of worldly wisdom and in turn is expressed by evil persons in in crafty plotting and maneuvering. Right? And all any and all such scheming is done to ultimately draw the believer away from God's truth. That's essentially the very reason why Paul tells his readers at the end of the letter in Ephesians 6.11 to, quote, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And as you consider all three of those potential results, what unites them together is that they all In their unique way result in a lack of mental and or spiritual stability for the believer. All three can and will cause us to be carried about like Christians if we allow them to, or more so if we willfully refuse to spiritually grow in the context of the church. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, Paul says, be mature. In 1 John 4, 1, the apostle John pleads, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's the third element, our our guard. Number four, our guarantee. And here Paul now turns a corner, goes 180 degrees, and now begins to speak to signs of spiritual maturity. Look at verse 15. Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Right? Again, you have these, another pair, love and truth. Right? Love, namely the love of God's Son, and truth, the truth of God's Word. Right? 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And truth, Jesus himself prays in John 17 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And it has to be both, it can't be either or. Right? Truth without love lends itself towards harsh legalism whereas love without truth ultimately lends itself towards sentimental liberalism. And both are deadly for the church. Both will kill us. A false teaching or, or doctrine is just as cancerous to the church as a loveless spirit or atmosphere. And women, this is one of our central callings as believers to speak the truth in love. Genuine love paired with uncorrupted truth. This incidentally is the essence again of our very unity as the church. Christ-like love. That's the standard. That's the measure. And because of love, we speak the truth. We don't hold back. We don't sugarcoat. We love one another. Enough to say it as it truly is. And this is ultimately what the leaders, the gifts all the way back in verse 11 work to equip in us as the body, right? From the pulpit, from the equipping class classroom and out into the world. It begins here and in turn is carried out by us into the community and beyond. Paul continues. He says we are to grow up Again, that's one of the reasons why we gather as the church, right? So that we can grow up. Nobody likes to be told that. I hate that. Dave, you need to grow up. And I've heard it a lot in my life. But it's true. Oftentimes, it's true. I submit to you that this is one of the fundamental purposes for our gathering together, for our fellowship. That we would grow up. I know it's at the heart of every discipleship relationship taking place in this church. And it's certainly the goal of all of our spiritual training and teaching from God's word. We need to grow up. You do. I do. Thankfully God calls us to do it together. And we're to grow up, Paul goes on to say, in every way. Right? In all areas of our spiritual life as well as all of our conduct as Christians, Paul says, into him who is the head, into Christ. There it is. Right? The pastor is not the model of spiritual growth. He's a fallen individual given the gracious spiritual gift to proclaim the truth. But his life always doesn't line up with that. And it's no other spiritual leader Rather, it's Christ. Christ is the one from whom we take our lead, right? He calls the shots. Why? Because he's the head of the spiritual body. Right? Colossians 1, one of the greatest descriptions of who Jesus is. We don't have time to read it all, but Paul says, verse 17, that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... He might be preeminent. You know what Paul's saying there? He's telling us there that Jesus is not only generally sovereign over creation, but he is specifically sovereign, explicitly sovereign over the church. And that in turn is why we must, in the words of Colossians 2.19, be holding fast to the head. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth, don't miss this, that is from God. It's from God. We are to grow in every way into him, into Christ our head. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, again, all the members of God's true church, there's no exceptions, are joined and held together. Again, you have that language of genuine spirit-fused unity, which just as an aside, shows us that in no way do we manufacture the unity we have as a church. We don't make it. Rather, we maintain what's already there, that which the spirit has already accomplished. Paul goes on to say, by every joint or, or fastening ligament with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, right? The key idea there is that of cooperating. Paul's essentially saying we all need to be on the same page, the, the same biblical blueprint, and we need to be working together towards the same God-honoring, Christ-exalting goals. That in turn means if there's no growth in this church or any church, if there's no growth, it very well may be because not every member is working properly. Right, I have a. We have a couple cars. I've had a car in my lifetime. I imagine we all, at some point, have had. And not everything's working. And some of those things you can get away with, right? Windshield wipers, pretty difficult in the state of Washington, but you can get away with it. No air conditioning, you'll be fine. A fan belt, a little bit different. Engine chatters, falls out, we have problems. But not so for the body of Christ. All parts need to be working. All members need to be using their gift. And as God is using us, is equipping us, is empowering us through his spirit, as all of that is happening, Paul says Christ makes the body grow. Paul tells us it's, it's Jesus who's ultimately responsible for the life and growth of his church. And to that I say, thank God. <laughs> right? It's Jesus who said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's a very relatable character, but not a perfect example. And there have been a lot of leaders who've been pretty good, pretty empowering none of them have compared to Christ he is our head he is the one that's making it all come about ultimately Paul says so that it builds itself up in love there it is again right and when Paul speaks of the body of Christ being built up please notice he's not speaking in terms of numerical growth he's on a whole nother level he's speaking of spiritual growth Right? If, you, if you get anything out of the sermon this morning, it's this, four simple words. You ready? Substance always trumps size. Always. I'd rather that this church be a church of substance, a church that's growing together, is growing up together, that is extending love and grace to each other because we're gonna be at different parts of our growing up and some of us are going to need to be told again, you need to grow up in love. But in the end, I'd rather it be like that than that we just be a big church. And we just be big for bigness sake. Believe you me, when the body of Christ looks and acts like this, God proves his faithfulness by doing the same thing he did all throughout the book of Acts. You know what He did. He added to the church. They were faithful, but not as much as God was faithful. And women, it's not great pastors who are ultimately the cause for great churches. Rather, great churches become great through the Son of God, working in and through the people of God as faithful and loving ministers of the gospel. And this in turn are the clear signs of spiritual health and growth within the church. That every member is thinking about how others can grow and how can I help them grow. And in turn is, we're serving one another out of love with these goals in mind. That we would grow up and we would grow close. In conclusion, you and I haven't been saved so that we can just sit and watch, right? Just simply fill a pew or or a chair as it might be. We haven't been saved so that we can have a social group to belong to as nice as that is. We haven't even been saved so that we can be rescued from things like loneliness or low self-esteem. And we certainly haven't been saved so that we can just skip from church to church to church until we find the one that suits us. No, I submit to you, you and I have been saved from sin and its curse so that we can serve. And so that we can give our lives away for the sake of God and his glorious kingdom and do nothing less. It was Randy Alcorn who said, when we invest ourselves in others, everybody wins. Paul says Ephesians 2:10, we are his workmanship creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That in turn begins with our commitment to use our gifts faithfully, diligently within the body of Christ. Hebrews thirteen seven says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so this church and other churches like it, we should have good and solid leaders So that we can grow. But in the end. Every Sunday morning is not. Human hero worship. Celebrating. What a great pastor we have. No it's something. Far greater. When we gather together every Lord's day. It's a celebration. Of the greatest gift we've ever been given. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Who has in turn. Given us the gifts. That we need to grow and mature. And no church is ever too old to grow up. And we do that in large part by each of us faithfully using our spiritual gifts. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Men women, when a church is like that, there's no better place to be not just on the Lord's day, but every day, to be together, loving, serving, growing, and exalting our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and you have furnished us, you have equipped us as your church with everything that we need to function, which means that we don't have to try and make something happen. It doesn't fall on us to be interesting. Rather, it's required of us to be faithful. Lord, we thank you. I thank you personally for this church. And as I look out and consider all the different people, each of them a gift to one another, Lord, help us, encourage us, help us to be encouragement practically and spiritually to one another, Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ over whom is our head, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his forgiveness. We thank you for his perfect righteousness which we are clothed in. We thank you for the way that he leads us and guides us and teaches us. Lord, make us more like him. And do it in a way where you get all the glory. For it's in Christ's glorious name we pray these things. Amen.